When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Then the king and all the people dedicated the house of God, and the priests attended to their services, the, the Levites also with instruments of the music of the Lord, which King David had made to praise the Lord, saying, For his mercy endures forever. Whenever David offered praise by their ministry, the priests sounded trumpets opposite them while all Israel stood. Furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, because the brown's altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat. At that time, Solomon kept the feast seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the book of Egypt. To the brook of Egypt. Sorry. And on the eighth day, they held a sacred assembly, for they observed the dedication of the altar seven days, and the feast seven days. Yeah, the feast seven days. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good that the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people Israel. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house, and Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart and made the house of the Lord and in his own house. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night. And said to him, I have heard your prayer, and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom, as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them, and this house, which I have sanctified for my name. I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, 
Why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? Then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and embraced other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore he has brought all this calamity on them. You may be seated. Let's pray before we dive in here, Second Chronicles. Lord, good morning. We, we welcome you here with us this day. And with your word open, we ask that you would teach us. Teach us what you would want us to know. Make it known, make it clear to us. What you would have us to take hold of today from your word. And, and by your good spirit, pray that you would lead us in the way of understanding. Lord, we travel to the book of Second Chronicles today. Our final road trip of the summer. I pray, Lord, that you would show us the stops along the way. That you would point out life-changing aspects in this text. Always keep before us whatever book we might be in. Always keep before us your Son. For this whole Bible points and leads to your Son... It's about how you provide salvation for your people through your Son. And so, Lord, we thank you for sending your Son, and we praise you for your word of truth. And today we ask that you would change us, restore us, renew us, revive us. I pray, Lord, that you would bring about change agents in this place through the lives of individuals and families that make up this church here at Hope in Christ. It's for your honor and glory we pray these things. Amen. Well, open your Bibles if you haven't done so. 2 Chronicles, we've got a lot to cover. If you read 2 Chronicles this week, you know there is a lot there. 36 chapters. And, And we've been tasked with each week, starting in June... Uh, This is week 14 of 14 messages uh, in this series on taking road trips, 66 uh, to 1. We're looking at going through the 66 books of the Bible and looking along the way at the one main attraction and seeing how these 66 books of the Bible point to the one main attraction. That main attraction church is Christ. Absolutely. Okay. I think it's important as we're reading these that we keep that before us. And so uh, summer number one has in, is, is coming to an end today, uh, officially, with Second Chronicles. And so uh, we're going to uh, move and really zoom uh, through Second Chronicles. It's, it's, when it's going to appear that way, at least, that we will move quite rapidly through Second Chronicles. And remember last week, just before... Uh, we ended, we, we talked last week, we had two uh, C's up on the board. Uh, one of them was connect and the other one was continuity. And we talked about uh, all the names in First Chronicles and, and the importance of connecting the recipients to the contents of the history book. And, and those first nine chapters of First Chronicles had a bunch of names. And the writer is wanting to connect the people, his audience, to all of these names and show them that they are connected, they are planted together, they're rooted in these people who've gone before them. And the continuity that he spoke of in First Chronicles was really a call to the people who were reading this book, 
a continuity to continue to be faithful. Here are people who are faithful. Keep on being faithful. We talked about how this group of people reading this history book of the Chronicler, they've returned from the exile. They're back in Jerusalem, but they're under Persian rule. Persia has allowed them to have their own house of God, and Persia has allowed them to worship their God, but Persia is still in control over the people of Israel. And so questions probably were abounding at that particular time. What now, God? What about your promises? What about the Messiah that you've promised? And so we see that the importance for the writer of Chronicles to show this connection between all the people who've gone before and also connect them and show them the importance of continuity. Keep the faith. Keep going. Well, here in 2 Chronicles, we pick up starting with the life of Solomon. 1 Chronicles ends with the death of David. David hands over the throne to Solomon. 2 Chronicles then opens up in chapter 1 with Solomon. And it will go all the way through the destruction of Jerusalem in chapter 36. Now, it's important as we talk about this connection and, and continuity that the Chronicle writer seems to be very, uh, very much carrying along. He does that here in 2 Chronicles in this way. We're going to track through 2 Chronicles the kings of Judah. Okay? When we looked at 1 and 2 Kings, one of the things we saw was this back and forth. When you read 1 and 2 Kings, you see uh, insight into the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And they kind of go side by side all the way to the end. In 2 Chronicles, we don't get the, the, the commentary, if you will, on the line of Israel's kings. In 2 Chronicles, we are seeing the line of David, the, the tribe of Judah, accounted for in 2 Chronicles. Okay, that's the path. And in between Solomon and the destruction of Jerusalem, the writer details 20 kings. 20. 20 kings of Judah. Now remember, the concern is primarily for this Davidic line. The Davidic line would be the royal line of the Messiah to come. Judah, right? The, the scepter is not departing from Judah. Messiah is coming out of Judah. That's important for us to understand that as we're looking forward to the Christ, the main attraction. The chronicler is writing this history for a people in need of hope. And his audience needs assurance that what God has spoken, he's still going to bring it to pass. The Chronicler presents a God who's orchestrating the events of history. He's moving, he's intervening, he's raising up, he's tearing down. And yet all the while he's doing these things, deliberately carrying forward his promises. What's going to happen once David, this man after God's own heart, what's going to happen once David leaves the scene? Will Solomon step up to lead once David dies? That's the end of First Chronicles, leaves us with that question or two of what's going to happen now. Kingship has been passed over, passed over to Solomon. How's this all going to play out? And so what we see here is Second Chronicles opens up, chapter 1. God appears to Solomon in a dream in verse 7. And he says, ask, what shall I give you? 
Pretty interesting question coming from God. Solomon requests in verse 10, Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this great people of yours? Now, having read the, the Kings and, and the Chronicles accounts, I was drawn to 1 Chronicles 22 here, because in 1 Chronicles 22, if you flip backwards just a few pages, you see these words to David. Or David is speaking to Solomon. Listen to these words from David, starting in chapter 22, verse 11. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you. May you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God as he has said to you. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding. It's interesting to me that David is talking to his son Solomon while he's still around and saying, hey, how important it is for you to get wisdom. How important it is for you, Solomon, to get understanding. And he says, and give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper. And so here when the question comes by God at night in a dream, what is it I shall give you, Solomon? Solomon answers in the very way that David calls him and says, this is what you need in order to lead the people, Solomon, wisdom and understanding. That's the answer that Solomon gives God. The text says that God is pleased with this answer. He gives them wisdom and understanding along with riches and honor like no other king. And so chapters 2, 3, and 4 are preparations for building the temple, right? And then you get to chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. So he brings the ark into the temple, and at the end of chapter 5, we see praise and worship. Look at, look at verses 13 and 14. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpet... Trumpeters, the singers, were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. That the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. We keep reading on into chapter 6. And we see these verses in 10 and 11. Solomon is speaking to the people upon the completion of building the temple. And he says in verses 10 and 11, So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. And I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have put the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord which he made with the children of Israel. Now the remainder of chapter 6 is Solomon's prayer of dedication. Thanking God for the temple that's been built for his name, right? This is a prayer to God in chapter 6 that God might hear his people when they sin. That, that when his people pray toward this temple built for his name, that he would forgive them. And that there would be this ongoing relationship between God and his people. Well, God shows up again in chapter 7. That was the chapter that was read this morning. Look with me starting in verse 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night. I've heard your prayer. I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the, the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves 
and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I will hear, I will forgive their sin, I will heal. If my people will humble themselves. If they will pray. If they will seek my face. If they will turn from their wicked ways. There's a reason I put that verse right up here in the corner of the board. 714. 714 is an important verse, really a core verse in the whole of this book. Because as we keep reading, he's telling, God is telling Solomon, if you walk before me as your father David walked, verse 17, and you do all according to all I've commanded you, if you keep my statutes and my judgments, I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father. Verse 19. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them. And this house, this house which I've built for my name, I'll cast out of my sight. God very clearly sets forth his instructions to Solomon. The test follows, not only for Solomon, but for those who will come after him. Will this king walk before God and do all according to all that God commands of him? Or will this king turn away and forsake God's statutes? Will he go and serve other gods and worship them? That's the test. And chapters 8 and 9 then conclude the life of Solomon, detailing his orderly works of establishing the kingdom just as David instructed him. And in chapter 9, we see the queen, uh, Queen Sheba, she comes and pays a visit to Solomon. She's showing up to check out what Solomon's kingdom's all about. She's heard some wonderful things, but now she has to come and see for herself. And she leaves with great expectations, amazed at the wisdom and grandeur of Solomon, amazed at the God of Solomon for all that he's established in Israel. And so the curtain closes on the life of Solomon in chapter 9. Now one of the things that the chronicler does as he's writing First and Second Chronicles that's different than the king's account, a lot of times the chronicle writer will leave out much of the bad events. Uh, for we know that there were some bad events in the life of Solomon, don't we? In, in fact, it had to do with some wives, uh, many wives, turned his heart, right? Turned his heart away from the Lord. It was one of his downfalls later in life. It was an ugly ending. But when you turn the page into chapter 10, and you start reading into chapter 10, you begin to see this, split in the kingdom. Up until Solomon, we have Saul, we have David, we have Solomon, all comprise what we know as the united kingdom, right? Everybody's together, 12 tribes together. After Solomon, there's a split. There's a division. Prophesied by the prophet Ahijah. Ten kingdoms, ten, ten tribes were going to be given to Jeroboam. Rehoboam was going to have two tribes. Well, the split occurs. And in chapters 10, 11, and 12, in fact, as we make our way through the book, we see these first nine chapters dealing with Solomon, right? 
Solomon dies at the end of chapter 9. And then chapters 10, 11, and 12, we see this account of Rehoboam. Uh, Rehoboam uh, takes over here in chapters 10, 11, and 12. And then in chapter uh, 13, we see Rehoboam's son, Abijah, come into play in chapter 13. But this, this divided kingdom, what we're going to see is that it's this twofold track that the history of God's people is going to run. For about, uh, history tells us about 209, 210 years. From 931, Solomon's reign ended in 931 B.C., and so from 931 all the way to 722 B.C., 722 ought to send a little red flag. 722 is when the Assyrians came and took Israel, right? Assyria, they, they came and they captured, took them into captivity. Samaria was captured. No more Israel. In 722 B.C., capital is taken. God's people go into captivity. Judah is then going to continue from 722 on to about 586. That's another 136 years. And history is going to show us that Judah also gets taken captive into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So 2 Chronicles spans the reign of Solomon, 971 to 931, through the destruction and captivity of Judah in 586. But unlike the account in 2 Kings, what we find here in 2 Chronicles is that it ends with a proclamation from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now to understand where Cyrus comes from, you need to have a little bit of handle on the world powers in the Middle East. During the days of Israel's kings, the world power in that area was Assyria until about 612 B.C. And around 612 B.C. then to 539 B.C., the Babylonians were in power, Nebuchadnezzar and company. Beginning in 538 all the way to about 330 B.C., the Medo-Persians were the world power. Now the text tells us, if you look just briefly at the end of 2 Chronicles... In chapter 36, the very last uh, verse there, it uh, says that um, Cyrus, king of Persia, issued a proclamation. And that first year of Cyrus would have been 538. Okay? The temple then gets rebuilt. The temple of God gets rebuilt in 516. Remember that Second Chronicles... It's thought to have been written around 400, late 300 B.C., okay? So the writer here of Chronicles is covering a lot of history. There's a lot of time that he's covering. And so we go back to the test, and we ask the question as we go through, will these kings that come, will they follow Solomon and David and walk before God and do according to all that God commands of them? Or will these kings turn away and forsake God and his statutes? Will they go and serve other gods and worship them? That's the test. And the chronicler is very good about summarizing the reigns of the kings. For instance, in chapter 12, look in chapter 12, verse 14. This is the end of Rehoboam's reign. It says, he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Abijah is one that when you read the Second Chronicles account only, you might think that he was a good king. The chronicler shares a, actually a good account of Abijah in chapter 13. 
Abijah speaks right words to Jeroboam, and God actually delivers Jeroboam into the hands of Abijah and the nation of Judah. In chapter 13, verse 18, we see that the children of Judah prevailed because they relied. Why did they prevail? They, 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 they won. They prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. But when we read the account in the Kings, we see that Abijah himself, like Rehoboam, was an evil king. In 1 Kings 15, verse 3, it says that Abijah's heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. Now, as you work through the history of Judah's kings in 2 Chronicles, church, you'll notice zero perfect kings. There are no perfect kings. There are especially no perfect kings in Israel. But there are no perfect kings in Judah. Let's understand that, okay? Good is given to those kings who, at least for a time, sought after the Lord God. They desired to keep the commandments of God. Bad is designated for those kings who forsook the ways of the Lord, led the nation away from the worship of God in the house of God. Okay? Ever so often, what we find is that God raises up what I'd just like to call a reformer. God, God raises up, sort of like long ago, remember when he raised up judges? Remember those judges God raised up? Praise God, he raised up some judges to rescue the people and save them. But here in Chronicles, what we see, a series of reformers. And there are some wonderful reformers that he uses. I'd like for us to, to look at and talk through some of these reformers as we make our way through Second Chronicles. What's a reformer? In short, a reformer is a change agent. He's not a perfect man, but he's a man who brings renewal, a, a refreshment, a return to the ways and words of God. The reformer is a, is a man who brings the aroma of God back into town. The reformer has a tendency to change the course of the nation for a time. He revives the people. He helps the people recover from a state of neglecting God and God's word. He calls them to return to God, to follow the pattern that's provided by David and Solomon. The first reformer that shows up on the scene that I'd like for us to talk about is Asa. Asa. So we have Solomon here. We have Rehoboam here in 10 through 12. And then we have in chapter 13, Abijah. Um, I put the, uh, the, the squares, the, the circles, okay, around the chapters where we're going to encounter these reformers. Okay? So here's the first one. 14 through 16, we run into Asa. Asa, son of Abijah. Twenty years have passed between Rehoboam and Abijah's reigns. So at the end of Solomon, when we take Rehoboam and we take Abijah and we, we combine their number of years together, we're looking at 20 years. Asa takes over as king Twenty years have passed since Solomon has died. And the reigns of Rehoboam and Abijah are characterized in general by evil. Evil. They did wicked. Okay? So chapters 14, 15, and 16 highlights this particular reformer, Asa. He reigned 41 years. 41 years. And his reign begins with 10 years of peace, it says in chapter 14, verse 1. 
And from the 15th year to the 35th year of his reign, God gave him peace. That's 20 more years. So we think 30, he reigned 41 years. 30 of his 41 years, God gave the land rest and peace during his days. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Verse 4, he commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. Verse 11 of chapter 14, when he's confronted with insurmountable odds in the battle, remember the Ethiopians are coming and they're pressing in. And and Asa has, I believe, about 580,000 against Ethiopia, has over a million men coming into this battle along with 300 chariots and it looks bad for Asa and company. But we see this prayer in verse 11. He cries out to the Lord is God. Lord, it's nothing for you to help. Whether with many or with those who have no power. And he says, help us. For we rest on you. And in your name, we go against this multitude. Chapter 15. We see in verse Nine. Again, thinking about this reformer and thinking about what are some of the things that he brought about? What are some of the changes he brought? What are some of the ways that he incorporated the, the nation of God to turn back to God? It says in chapter 15, verse 9, that this is after hearing from the prophet Azariah, right on the heels of hearing the words of God through the prophet. He gathers all Judah and Benjamin, those who dwelt near them, Ephraim and Simeon. They came over, and it says here that Asa took courage. He hears the words, he took courage, and and what's he do? He removes the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, and he restores the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. Asa gathers all the people together in the 15th year of his reign, and in, in chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, look what Asa does here. He, he enters into covenant with the people, with God, to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart, with all their soul. Listen to this in verse 13. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was to be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. On Asa's watch, if you weren't going to seek the Lord God, you were put to death. Well, that's quite a contrast from today, isn't it? Praise God, though, for this reformer. He was calling these people to seek the Lord, the God of heaven. You know, as we go through these reformers, I'd like to bring out at least one or more what I would just call marker or highlights of this reformer because they all did some wonderful things, all brought about some great changes. Here to me is one of the big markers of Asa, and perhaps it's, it's kind of tucked away, but I see this as big. Verse 16, chapter 15, Asa, look, look what he did. He removed Maaka. Who's Maaka? Maaka was the mother of Asa. He removed his mom. Listen, church, listen to this. This is important. 
He removed her from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. Asa cut down her obscene image and crushed it and burned it. Asa removes... Listen, this is, this is hard. How many of you know that when you're dealing with immediate family, conflict is really, really hard? Anybody ever experienced that? Conflict with your immediate family? Asa is dealing with mama. And he says, Mom, the other God's got to go. He deals with it. He does not allow his fear of mama to keep him from taking action. The fear of man brings a snare. We're called to fear the Lord above and beyond fearing man, correct? And this is one thing I love about Asa the reformer. He was all in with God, and he was calling the people to be all in with God. And Asa understood he couldn't call and covenant the people of God to be all in with God unless and until he got rid of the things of his mom. It's quite contrary to what he was calling the people to. He made a hard decision. Well, things are going really well for this first reformer until year 36 of his reign. Chapter 16 then picks up the account. King Baasha is setting up siege to attack Asa. And Asa, in light of that, he calls up Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, and he bribes Ben-Hadad with a little bit of silver and gold from the Lord's temple and treasury and asks for his help against Baasha. And the offer must have been sweet enough, for Ben-Hadad cuts off his treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, and he comes to the aid of Asa. Now, Baasha ends up leaving the scene to combat Ben-Hadad. And when he leaves, Asa and his men, they go and collect all the building resources that Baasha had left behind. And Asa looks really slick. I'm sure he feels really good about outwitting Baasha. But it's at that point in time when the prophet Hanani, chapter 16, verse 7, shows up on the scene. And he chastises him for relying on the king of Syria for his help. And he reminds him at this time, hey, you remember the king from Ethiopia? And you remember when you were outnumbered? Do you remember what you did then? Do you remember that you called upon the Lord? And do you remember what the Lord did, Asa? He delivered you. Why did you turn to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria? And it's at this point where we see the words in 16, verse 9 from Hanani. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this, what's this? Asking Ben-Hadad to help. In this, you've done foolishly. I believe Asa thought he was really doing the right thing. He outwitted him. He was pretty clever. The prophet shows up and says, in this you've done foolishly. And because of this, you're now going to have wars. Asa didn't like that. In fact, Asa responds poorly. And his life from year 36 to year 41 spirals downward. He sends Hanani to prison. He gets angry with his people. He gets diseased in his feet. In verse 12 of chapter 16, says that in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. He didn't seek the Lord. He didn't seek the Lord a reformer for some 35 years, but the final five or six years of his life were oppressive for the nation of Judah. And what we have here in the scripture is really unique to the pattern of kings, is this back-to-back reformers. 
From Asa, God brings, this is 17, 18, 19, and 20. From Asa, we get, love the name, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, son of Asa. Remember, in the line of Judah, there are only two family lines. David and the other, we'll see here in just a moment, uh, Athaliah. And Athaliah is only around for seven years. God takes care of her, as we'll see. So, Jehoshaphat reigns for 25 years. Asa reigned for 41 years, Jehoshaphat for 25 years, and he begins to breathe new life back into the people of God, restoring what had been on the decline the final years of his father, Asa. Chapter 17, verses 3 and 4 says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father, David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father. And walked in the commandments and not according to the acts of Israel. This sounds like the reformer that we want in place as the leader of the people. Amen? That's who we want in charge. This was Jehoshaphat. We see in verse 6, chapter 17, his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. His heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. And then I believe here what we have in 7 through 11 of chapter 17. This is one of the markers that I'd like to raise up about this particular reformer, Jehoshaphat. We see that in verses 7, 8, and 9. I love this about Jehoshaphat. It says in the third year of his reign, he sent his leaders. And verse 8 says, with them he sent the Levites. What did he do? He sent them to teach in the cities of Judah. Verse 9, they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went throughout the cities of Judah and taught the people. So Jehoshaphat on his watch as a reformer, here's what he's doing. He's sending out all of his leaders coupled with his Levites and they're going to the cities of Judah and they're teaching the people with the word of God. Isn't that great? Talk about a reform. The people are hearing from the word of God. They are being taught, they're being ministered to, they're being discipled. Well, Jehoshaphat, as you probably are aware, if you read the text, he aligns himself with both Ahab and Ahaziah. These are two wicked Israelite kings of the day. In chapter 18, verse 1, says that Jehoshaphat had riches and honor and abundance, and by marriage he allied himself with Ahab. That's one of those verses where in the margin it's just right, bad idea. It was a bad idea. Bad idea. May have been good for political purposes, maybe. Perhaps that's why he did it. But we're going to see how detrimental that was, not just to Jehoshaphat, but to his next two generations that followed. He goes into battle with Ahab at the end of chapter 18. He nearly gets killed. I mean, think about this. Going into battle with a guy, Ahab, this, this tells you just a little bit about the guy Ahab. All right, look, look at verse uh, 28. They're going into battle against Ramoth Gilead. They go up there. The king of Israel, Ahab, says to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robe. I'm reading this, and I'm going, well, well that seems kind of odd. The, the one king's going to disguise himself, but he wants Jehoshaphat to go in with his robes on. The king of Israel disguised himself, go into battle. Verse 30. 
The king of Syria had commanded the captains of the chariots who were with him, fight with no one small or great, only the king of Israel. So it was when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat that they said, it's the king of Israel. Well, why'd they say that? Because Jehoshaphat was the only one that had the king's robe on. Ahab was disguised. And had it not been for the Lord, he cries out to the Lord. The Lord helped him and the Lord diverted the enemy from killing him that day. But see, this is the kind of king that Jehoshaphat allied himself with. Ahab. Ahab. And we see that Ahab is then shot by a random arrow. And even in, in spite of the fact that he was in disguise. It's at this point when another of God's prophets shows up at the beginning of chapter 19. Verse 2, Jehu, he says to Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? <laughs> Therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Now, friends, that's never a good thing to hear from the Lord, is it? <laughs> the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, the prophet says, good things are found in you, Jehoshaphat, and that you've removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. Isn't that a great thing to point out about this reformer? He's prepared his heart to seek the Lord God. Notice after hearing from Jehu, the prophet, verse 4, he goes out again. He, he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim, and he brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. How did he do that? I tend to believe he did it just like he did it early on, by sending his leaders, by sending his Levites out to Call the people back to the word of God. We see that other reforms that Jehoshaphat makes, he, he, he establishes just judges in the land. He appoints Levites and priests to faithfully carry out their duties in the house of God. In chapter 20 then, Jehoshaphat is seen praying to God amidst another one of those lopsided battles. And Jehoshaphat is on the short straw of this battle. There's multitudes coming at him from Moab and Ammon and Mount Seir. And he gathers the people and calls on the name of the Lord, and they all come together, it says in chapter 20. In 3 and 4, they gathered together. What were they gathering together to do? To seek help from the Lord God. And, and part of this prayer in chapter 20, 20 verse 12, Jehoshaphat says, our, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that's coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. God, we don't know what to do here. We're outnumbered. It's clear. But Lord, our eyes are upon you. The Spirit of the Lord speaks through the Levite, Jehaziel, and calls the plan of action for Jehoshaphat and Judah. Look at verse 17 of chapter 20. The, he says, the Levite says, You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. The next day Jehoshaphat encourages the people. Chapter 20, verse 20. He says, believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. And verse 22, I love this verse. When they began to sing and to praise. When they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. When I think about the reformer Jehoshaphat, I, I think much of the praise and the worship. 
in battle. He's the reformer who had a heart of praise and worship. It's in the midst of singing and praising where God shows up and defeats the enemy. It's a wonderful passage of scripture. I'm sure it brought a lot of encouragement to the people of Judah in that day. Well, after Jehoshaphat comes 16 years of evil kings. We have uh, Jehoram. So we have chapter 21, uh, Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram. Uh, He actually married uh, the daughter of Ahab. Things didn't go real well with Jehoram. Uh, Chapter 22 then, we we pick up the, uh, the son of Jehoram is Ahaziah. Ahaziah reigned for just about a year is all. Ahaziah, his mom, was Athaliah. Athaliah is going to come next after Ahaziah's reign. And Athaliah is going to reign for seven years. And she's pretty wicked too. Athaliah is the granddaughter of Omri. Omri was one of the wicked kings of Israel. And so Athaliah, granddaughter of Omri, is seated on the the throne, the throne of Judah. She's not in the line of David. This is the one that's not in the line of David. For seven years, she's on the throne. And at the end of chapter 22, we're introduced to this young man, Joash, who was born the youngest son of Ahaziah in the line of David, and praise God in a way that only God could orchestrate. God preserves, because you see, one of the things Athaliah does is she tries to destroy all of the royal heirs, and she accomplishes that with the exception of one young man named Joash. And Jehoshaphat, who is the the nurse uh, of the day, she actually takes Joash and hides him in a room in the house of the Lord For six years, Joash remains hidden. So at the end of chapter 22, we're introduced to Joash. And then in chapters 23 and 24, we get the reign of Joash. And Joash actually is is this next reformer. Joash. And in many ways, we see Joash is the reformer that he is, in large part because of the priest during his day, Jehoiada. If you notice in the text, the text actually tells us this very thing, that when Joash comes on the scene, chapter 24, verse 2, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. All the days of Jehoiada the priest. Okay? Now, when I think about Joash and I think about his reign, he reigned for 40 years, church. And he started reigning at the age of seven. We got any seven-year-olds here? Anybody seven? Seven. We got one seven-year-old. Think about that. Alyssa. All right. Seven years old. Here's the king. Joash. Joash has taken the throne at seven years of age. Understand one of the markers of this reformer, I believe, is in chapter 24, verse 4. Joash set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. This reformer set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. There's an assumption, and it's a true assumption, that the house of the Lord was in disarray, in large part because of Athaliah. In fact, 
Look at chapter 24, verse 7. It tells us that. The sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God, had also presented all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord to the Baals. It was a mess. The house of the Lord was in shambles. It was a mess. And Joash, this reformer who comes on the scene, the one who is preserved by God to carry and continue the line of David, Joash sets his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. How does he do with this? Look at verse 13 of chapter 24. During the days of Joash, the people restored the house of God to its original condition and reinforced it. Restored it and reinforced it. Halfway through chapter 24, we see that Jehoiada dies. Jehoiada the priest, verse 15. He grew old, was full of days, and he died. The wheels fall off at this point for Joash. He listens to some poor counsel. He turns away from God. God then tries to send some prophets his way to course correct Joash, but he would not listen, verse 19 says. And Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, comes to him and speaks And he comes to speak, and in doing so, he gets stoned in the court of the Lord. All the good that Jehoiada did for Joash seemed not to matter in this time because Joash executes Jehoiada's son, Zechariah. And for this, God then sends an army against Judah, destroys all the leaders of Judah, humiliates them because they had forgotten. That's verse 24. Because they had forgotten the Lord God of their fathers. They didn't pass the test. They didn't pass the test up here, 714. Remember the test? Joash's life is taken by his own servants. Ugly ending, chapter 24. Four kings follow Joash. In chapter 25, up here, we have Amaziah. Chapter 26, Azariah, otherwise known as Uzziah. Okay? Interesting thing about Uzziah in chapter 26, verse 5, uh, it talks about as long as he sought the Lord, the Lord prospered him. The Lord gave him success. And he did for a while seek the Lord. Chapter 27 is Jotham. And then we get to chapter 28. And once again, when we get to 28 with King Ahaz, wheels fall off for the nation of Judah. 16-year reign for Ahaz. Ahaz sends the nation of Judah in this downward spiral. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for Baal. Look at chapter 28, verse 2. That's Ahaz. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And look at verse 3. He burned his children in the fire. You think things are getting bad for the people of Judah? It's really bad at this point. Chapter 28, pivotal bad moment in the life of the nation of Israel, or excuse me, of Judah. Ahaz, sacrificing his own children in the fire. Well, God, as you might guess, was not real pleased with that, provoking the Lord to anger. He hands his nation over to Syria for a time and then lets Israel plunder Judah. Pekah, who is the king at the time of Israel, comes and he destroys 120,000 of the valiant men of Judah in one day. Why? Look at 28, verse 6. Here it is again. Because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. That's the pattern. Failed the test. They turned away. Situation goes from bad to worse as Ahaz 
leads apart from God's guidance. Judah is now getting disciplined by the rod of God. 28 verse 19 says, The Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Look at the end, what Ahaz does at the end in verses 24 and 25. He gathers articles of the house of God, cuts in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of God, made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem, and in every single city of Judah he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. I read all this mess from the reign of Ahaz to set the context for the next reformer that comes on the scene. Here's the next reformer that comes on the scene. Praise God for Hezekiah. Right? Hezekiah. Chapters 29, 30, 31, and 32 cover the life of Hezekiah. He reigns for 29 years. And in the sixth year of Hezekiah, Israel falls to Assyria. Right? So when Israel falls to Assyria, we're at what date on the map, church? 722, right? In the sixth year of Hezekiah's reign, Israel falls to Assyria. We read that in 2 Kings 18, 10. So between Joash and Hezekiah... So we look right here, between Joash down here and Hezekiah, we've got 113 years. There's a 113-year gap. And a lot of the evil and wickedness happens in these previous 16 years by King Ahaz. Okay? A couple markers that I'd like to highlight of this reformer, Hezekiah. First, I love this about him. He sets God's house in order. That's, that's, That's number one. Number one item. In the first year, 29 verse 3, first year of his reign, first month. First year, first month. What's he do? He opens the doors of the house of the Lord. Why does he have to open the doors? Because verse 24 of chapter 28 says that Ahaz shut the doors. Ahaz put nails in the doors. He just shut them. What's the first thing? First year, first month, Hezekiah. He opens the doors of the house of the Lord and he repairs them. Praise God for this reformer. The house of God means something to this young man, Hezekiah. And he sanctifies the priests and the Levites, and he assigns them the task of cleansing the temple. Essentially, in 29 verse 5, he says, Hey, guys, I want you to carry out all this garbage that's in the house of God. Get it out of here. And they do that. They sanctify themselves. They clean the house of God. It takes 16 days to get the house of the Lord cleaned up. 16 days. We got a lot of work done not too long ago in this house that had a bunch of stuff in it. I think Chris said about 12 days it took to clean that up. These people were at work 16 days. Some of you that were at the project know that there was a lot of stuff to clean up there at the house. Can you imagine all the stuff that was in the Lord's house, all the stuff that had been brought into the Lord's house, stuff that needed to be cleaned up, restored? In 16 days it happened. Hezekiah then sets out to restore temple worship God's way, the way that's instructed by David. The the priests were positioned in the temple. They were offering sacrifices, and the Levites were equipped once again with their uh, cymbals and their stringed instruments and harps, according to the commandments of David. A return to the way things ought to have been under the authority and headship of God. All the uh, assembly worships together 
during this time of Hezekiah. Songs are being sung. Sacrifices are being made. The trumpeters are sounding forth. Beautiful music's being played. And God is getting worshipped once again in his sanctuary. Chapter 29, verse 28 says that they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and they worshipped. And at the end of chapter 29, I love these verses. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. The people's hearts had been prepared by God. This was a wave of fresh air, a king who calls the nation back to God, a return to the way things should be, the way they were intended to be, the way that God said it should be. Well, Hezekiah then sends runners throughout the land of Israel to call the people to Jerusalem that they might celebrate Passover. Passover. Remember Passover? Passover. Hezekiah wants to celebrate Passover, that remembrance meal. So what we find is that some of the neighboring tribes declined the invitation quite rudely, I might add. Verse 10, chapter 30, they laughed at them and mocked them. Some actually did take them up on the invite, and they came and they, they participated in the Passover. But you get to the end of chapter 30, and you see that the assembly agreed to keep the feast another week. They were having so much fun worshiping the Lord, they said, let's do this one more week. And they agreed, and they kept it with gladness. Verse 23, there was great joy, verse 26, in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Since the time of Solomon. So here we are, we're right here. Since the time of Solomon, there had been nothing like this Passover. Hezekiah commanded the people residing in Jerusalem, 31 verse 4, to contribute support for the priests and the Levites so that they might devote themselves full-time to the law of the Lord. And the people willingly gave. Here's another marker of this reformer, Hezekiah. And we see it in chapter 31, verses 20 and 21. Hezekiah did throughout all Judah... And he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment, to seek his God, he did it with all his heart. He did it with all his heart. And so he prospered. He worked for God with all of his heart. That seems to be a marker in in, in his life, in Hezekiah's life. And the third and final marker of this reformer we see in chapter 32 Sennacherib, king of Assyria, comes against him, and Hezekiah comes, and and he prays along with Isaiah, the prophet. Hezekiah and Isaiah are contemporaries, and things are lopsided once again as Assyria is on the doorstep, and Hezekiah takes this bad news of what's happening, and he takes it, and I love the phrase, he spreads it before the Lord. He spreads it before the Lord in prayer. He takes the situation to God. This is marker three of this reformer. He is a man of prayer, Hezekiah is, a man of prayer. He and Isaiah pray, and the Lord delivers by sending an angel to destroy 185,000 Assyrians. He takes care of the house of the Lord. He, He works with all of his heart to see that the things of the Lord are carried out, and he operates in prayer by faith, trusting God to take care of the battle. Well, we have 57 more years that go by after Hezekiah. That's two additional kings. In chapter 33, we see the account of Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, and we see Ammon, the son of Manasseh. Okay, that's chapter 33. Manasseh reigned for 55 years, and Manasseh was a wicked king. 
although he did make a U-turn. Manasseh did repent of his ways, praise God. His son Ammon did not do that. text tells us that very clearly. He did not. It's important for us to understand, on the heels of 57 years, the Lord raises up one additional reformer. His name is Josiah. Josiah, the son of Ammon. His grandpa was Manasseh. If things were bad following Ahaz's reign in chapter 28, multiply the wickedness caused during the reigns of Manasseh and Ammon. Ahaz reigned 16 years. Manasseh and Ammon reigned 57 years. On a bright note, as we said earlier, Manasseh does repent of his sin while he's being afflicted by Assyria. But his son Ammon does not humble himself, and he takes after his father in worshiping the carved images. This is a particular dark period in the history of God's people. So we enter into the scene, Josiah. He reigns for 31 years, and he comes to the throne at the age of eight. Do we have anybody in here who's eight? Anybody? Any eight-year-olds? No eight-year-olds. All right? Josiah was eight. Joash was seven. Two young men taking the throne. We see in chapter 34, verse 2, that he walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And while he was still young, age 16, any 16-year-olds here? Any 16? We've got a couple 16-year-olds. At the age of 16, Josiah began to seek the Lord God of his father David. That's chapter 34, verse 3. At the age of 20, we see in chapter 34, verse 3, He begins to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and the wooden images and the carved images and the molded images. And then at the age of 26, he sends Shaphan and Messiah and Joah, sends them to the house of the Lord to repair the house of the Lord, 34 verse 8. Here's marker number one of this reformer, Josiah. He recovers the book of the law. He recovers the book of the law. Hilkiah the priest finds this book of the law in the house of the Lord. Of all places to find it, he finds it in the house of the Lord. It just hadn't been used for some time. The words are read to Josiah and he receives it with a repentant heart. He he makes the connection that his fathers hadn't been following this word and he wants to see the nation amend her ways. And in chapter 34, verse 30, he brings all of the house of the Lord, all the men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, brings them together. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. Look at 31. The king stood in his place. The king made a covenant. Josiah made a covenant before the Lord that he was going to follow the Lord. He was going to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes. And in verse 32, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin, I love the phrase, take a stand. He made them take a stand for the things of God and for God himself. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God. Verse 33, Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. All his days, this reformer, Josiah, did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. So the word of God is found, it's read, it's received, it's impressed upon all the people of Judah. Covenant is established to take a stand for God and to follow his word. Here's the second highlight or marker of this reformer, Josiah, and that is he keeps what we would call a landmark Passover. We thought Hezekiah's Passover was a big deal. Josiah's Passover is a bigger deal. 
Because you see, Josiah is in a time frame now where Israel has actually gone. And so he's calling all of the people, all of the people. And the text even tells us that. So all the service. He, he sets the priests and the Levites in place. The singers are positioned where they need to be. And the gatekeepers are now at their gates. And chapter 35, verse 16, says that all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep Passover, to offer the burnt offerings according to the command of King Josiah. And in verse 18, there had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel. Since the days of whom? Since the days of Samuel. Samuel. This goes, this goes off our chart. Our chart goes to Solomon. Before Solomon was David. Before David was Saul. And a contemporary of Saul was Samuel. This is a long time ago. There's not been a Passover since the days of Samuel the prophet. Josiah the reformer brings and establishes this. Well, there are four kings that follow Josiah. Four evil kings. And they're all four given right here in chapter 36. Jehoahaz. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and the last one is Zedekiah. Nebuchadnezzar comes, destroys Jerusalem. Things go south. Judah is besieged, taken into captivity. God tries to send prophets to turn the hearts of the people. Chapter 36, verse 16 tells us that they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. Listen, till there was no remedy. The chronicler presents a tragic picture of the destruction in verse 19 of chapter 36. Then they burned the house of God. Remember that wonderful house of God that Solomon built? They burned the house of God. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And it's about this point where we would cry out, oh, for another reformer to stand in the gap. God, your people need help here. And yet God does send a reformer, a change agent, not the guy that you would expect, but that's a lot like God. It's fitting with his nature and who God is. He tends to work in ways that we can't see. He, he tends to use the unlikely. And in this particular case, he moves the heart of Persia's King Cyrus. Isn't it interesting at the end of Second Kings that we get this little window picture of King Jehoiachin, who in his 37th year of captivity, evil Merodach who is the king at the time, he, he releases Jehoiachin in the 37th year of his captivity. We talked about that when we were in 2 Kings, that portrait of grace. Jehoiachin didn't do anything to deserve it. He just got released, and he got to eat from the king's table the rest of his days. That's the end of 2 Kings. We get another portrait of grace at the end of 2 Chronicles. This proclamation of King Cyrus. Grace is extended to God's people once again. 2 Chronicles ends with hope. Jerusalem is destroyed, but the historian concludes his history with hope. God stirs the heart of Cyrus to issue a decree. The people of God have hope. God's still working. He's still moving. He's still on the throne. In chapter 26, 23, 36, 23, Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth of the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him. And let him 
go up. The pendulum of Judah rocks back and forth as we've seen covering the 20 kings. But it doesn't rock back and forth at random. It doesn't rock back and forth by chance. In every transition that takes place in Judah, the heart establishes the direction of the pendulum. The heart. The mind. Where there was a heart lifted up, the pendulum swings against Judah. Where there's a lack of discernment, lack of accountability in place, absence of prayer, the momentum of the pendulum swings against God's people. But where there's a heart preparing to seek the Lord, where there's a heart loyal to God, where there's action taken to seek the Lord God of the fathers, to restore the house of the Lord, to worship the Lord, to obey what God's spoken, the pendulum rocks in favor of God's people. This is no coincidence. This is no accident. This is exactly what God said would happen when he spoke with Solomon. If my people who are called by name, by my name, if they will humble themselves, if they will pray, if they will seek my face, if they will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and commandments, if you, have, if you go away from those things which I've set before you and you go and serve other gods and you worship them, I will uproot them from the land. Church, this is the gospel in short. Repent. Must come to God with a spirit of humility. If my people humble themselves, turn to God in faith, we're seeking his face. We're, we're crying out to him in prayer. And living a life that reflects your heart of repentance. Which includes, by the way, turning from your wicked ways. We can't keep going in the way of our wickedness and our evil and our sin. And still cling and hold on to the Lord. We're called to abandon that old way of living. And to live as though we really are a new creation in Christ. For those who harden their necks, he will uproot, he will tear down. For those who want to go their own stubborn way, he will cast them out of his sight in a place the Bible calls hell. Eternal separation from God. Friends, we are intended to learn from history how God works, his mighty ways. So let's humble ourselves, let's pray diligently, let's pray with devotion, let's pray in the spirit, all these things the scripture calls us to. Seek his face, turn from our wicked ways. Where we stumble in sin, let's be quick to repent and to come to God in humility. He promises to hear, to forgive, and to heal. And it's through the blood of his son that he's already brought forgiveness of our sins and healing. His desire is that none would perish and that all would come to a place of repentance. Second Chronicles begs the question really at the end, who will stand up and step in as the next reformer in God's line of reformers? Any change agents in this place? Men and women who will humble themselves, pray, seek the face of God, turn from their wicked ways. Because you see, his eyes are still searching to and fro, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. He's still searching. He's still looking. May he find some who are faithful here in this place.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this book of Second Chronicles. So much history here, Lord, but very important history in the life of your people. Thank you for the work of all of these kings, how they all piece together to accomplish your will and your purpose. But Lord, we praise you in particular for these five reformers we spoke of this morning, Asa and Jehoshaphat and Joash, Hezekiah and Josiah. And we thank you even for the surprise change agent at the end of the book in King Cyrus your grace gift to your people to rebuild your house, to reestablish your name in Jerusalem. Oh, Father, I pray that there would be change agents here in this place, that we would take hold of these words, that we would, just as the kings had a test, and the test was given to Solomon. Oh, Lord, I pray that each one of us would grab a hold of the test and endeavor to live our lives and pass the test for your sake, for your glory, for your honor that we would carry out this test. It's a test that is really given to us each day of our life. Are we going to walk with you, or are we going to forsake you and turn from your ways? May we be men and women of faith, ambassadors that you would be proud of here on earth, new creations in Christ that actually live as new creations, not as old ones. When you return, Lord, I pray that you would find faith in these people here at Open Christ, that we would be found diligently preparing our hearts, diligently seeking you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Make us change agents, Lords, I pray, for your glory and honor. Help us shine light that others might see Christ. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.